Hello, this is Raymond, and you are listening to Global Yard. Global Yard, Global Yard, Global Yardy. Welcome to the Global Yardy Podcast. Global Yardy. Global Yardy. Captured colorful and powerful conversations on climate, culture, and sustainable living. Hello, this is Sami from Nigeria. It's good to have Global Yadi back. Hi, I'm Dana Lynn and welcome to the Global Yadi podcast. In this episode of our Climate Justice series, we take a closer look at how climate change affects the culture and communities for indigenous people in the Caribbean. We connected with the leaders of two indigenous communities in Suriname and Belize. Both Indigenous leaders share their experience on how their organizations are working to promote and protect the rights of their Indigenous communities. This is a two-part episode. We will begin in Suriname. Indigenous peoples occupy 40% of the world's protected areas. A very common but critical challenge for Indigenous people is the issue of land rights. Historically, the legislative framework of governments with colonial legacies are not structured to protect Indigenous people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Global Yadi Podcast. I am your host, Dana Linsweve, and you are listening to the special climate justice series in collaboration with the Young People for Climate Action Jamaica with funding from, from the Open Society Foundation. And we want to say thank you if you've been following the series and just continue to support and follow us on our social media pages. And we'll share a little bit with you about the social media information or if you've been listening to the podcast, you should know. So we always say that we have a special guest, but this time we're very excited because it's the Climate Justice Series and it's very important that we include the underrepresented voices, the voices that we don't normally hear in the mainstream conversations. And we're happy to kickstart our Indigenous feature with a guest all the way from Suriname. He is the president of the Organization of Indigenous People in Suriname. And we're very excited to get to know more this cultural exposure. This is what this podcast does. We connect climate change, culture, um, you know, in one melting pot. So I want to say welcome to Sirijo Yana Aluma. I hope I got that correctly. Sirijo, welcome to the Global Yari podcast. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, it's an honor to be here as well. Um, it's our job, right? It's our uh, work to spread the news, to spread the awareness. So uh, it's it's an honor to actually be a part of your uh, of your podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Sirichar, for being here. So um, can you give us a brief background of the community that you represent? You know, not every day we get to speak to someone directly from um, an indigenous community in Suriname. So we'd love to learn more about uh, your tribe. I understand you're from the Kalinya um, tribe. And so tell us a little bit about that and about your, your indigenous community. Over 20,000 people, or 3.8% of the population in Suriname, are indigenous. The Kalinya are among the largest indigenous groups in the country. Well, um, the community that I represent is actually, uh, in its whole, Suriname, all of the indigenous uh, organizations and peoples in Suriname. Um, that is what the OI stands for. But um, my background, actually, I come from a, a, a village uh, that's called Galibi. And within Galibi, you have two different uh, villages again. 
that is Christian Kondri and Langaman Kondri. I'm from the part of Christian Kondri. Uh, so was my father and so is my mother as well. Yes, I was born with, within um, a family within uh, a family that was uh, com- that was fighting for the rights or that is fighting for the rights of indigenous people. And from my village out, I can say since 1976, one year after the independence of Suriname from uh, the Netherlands, they uh, they they took a piece of land and they, they just uh, made it a, a protected area. And we weren't, um, I wasn't born yet, but uh, this is in the history. So that is where the land rights uh, began. You know, my father began with this, uh, with, with this movement. And by the time I was born, there was already a fight. There was a uh, civil war going on. Uh, they all wanted to kill us. Uh, and I was a baby, so I, I don't remember these things. But yeah, that is the history that I. Uh, that's the story that I got from my parents. And after we we flee away, we I went to the city because I couldn't go to the to the village anymore. The road was destroyed, and stayed a couple of years in the city. And after the civil war, we went back to the community, and that is where I. Yeah, I grew up again in the community, went back to the city, and that is how I grew up. And I don't know actually better just um, to come up for the right of the indigenous people, you know, and not only the indigenous people, to all of it around the nature, the 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 living area, all of these things, and not only the indigenous people. It's all all of the people. Uh, because in Suriname, actually, it's a small, it's a small country. We we are just with a half a million people, and everybody knows each other. So we are fighting for each other, you know, and not amongst each other, which happens. But still, the yeah. heart is here for Suriname. It's for to protect the whole Amazon, actually, in its whole. Right. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so. I want to come, you touched on something that was very important and we're going to save it a little further down about the important issue of land rights. But I remember we were having a discussion earlier and you were, you're talking about the community in terms of where it was located, um, you know, close to like um, Northeast of Suriname, French Guyana, and how many persons are in the community. Could you um, give our listeners a little bit more of that background that you went into? Yes, uh, the Kalinya people are spread all over Suriname, but the most of them are within uh, the east of Suriname, northeast of Suriname, uh, on the coastal area where the only beach, actually, natural beach of Suriname is. Uh, it's a really great white beach. Um, and it's at the border of French Guiana, where the beach continues, and also where the Kalinya people lives. Um, our Kalinya people are actually quite big our family only in the village we have uh, about 800 uh, people living there many of them uh, went away to the city or to other countries to study or to work or to do whatever they they are doing now and also the these same um, kalinya people are also uh, to be found 
at the border with French Guiana and Brazil. And there you have also the Galibi uh, over there. The name Galibi is also on the map at uh, in Brazil and are also family of us. So, yeah, um, except for the coastal area, you have also in the cent- central of Suriname, you have uh, Kalinya people, villages, many villages. And yeah, so on. We are actually everywhere of Suriname. Um, we, we still speak the uh, language from baby on. We are being... Uh, uh, we are growing up with our, with our native language. Um, that's the Kalinya language. So um, I think 90% of our people still speaks this language. Um, you have other people as well in Suriname as the Arawak, the Trio, the Wayana, and uh, the Akurio. These are the big groups. And then you have the other uh Groups, the Tunayana, Kashuana, Kahayana, Mawayana, uh, etc. You have a lot more, uh, but they don't have really. They don't really have a village because they are living actually isolated. They don't want to be known. They don't want to be found. Uh, and the thing is, the uh, from my people, from the Galibi people, the Kalinya people, we. We love our tradition. We love our culture. We don't want to lose it. Uh, that, is a, that is something that we are proud of. Like many other indigenous groups, the Kalinya people live in harmony with the environment as their livelihoods depend on natural resources. However, the demands of development, including the strong interest in gold and other natural resources, alter the balance of how indigenous people are nurtured by nature. Actually, the daily life is um, uh, fishing is one of them. The sea, we are close to the sea. For, for my um, for my village, I will I will say this uh, something. But there are there are a lot of things because I represent the whole uh, country, right? But let me say from my village out, it's uh, the sea is one of them. The river because the river is polluted. It's uh, is getting polluted every day. Every hour, because of the miners, the gold miners, um, and on the on the other side, uh, yes, we are hunters, we are fishers, we are uh, planters. So we use land to to make actually our daily food. We don't have salary of the of the government. Some have, but not too much. Uh, we are isolated, so we have to take the boat. There's no road to our community. Um, we have to take the boat to go to the supermarkets, and that's it's, that's expensive. You know, you have to have a boat, you have to have a motor, and gasoline. That's very expensive. Uh, almost cannot uh, uh, afford that, but some can, and that is how we combine. Uh, if I look at uh, water, we we cannot pollute our ground because we use the water of the ground, you know, we pumped our own water. Um, and if I look at the energy, yes, energy everybody needs. So, yeah, the government has a really big generator there, diesel, what's, very, what's polluting the world actually. But, yeah, it's only for a couple of hours, mm. like four hours a day we have electricity. 
And yes, that is how we do our daily life, you know. So we cannot pollute anything because we need everything. We need the the forest. We cannot we cannot uh, hunt for commercial reason because if we do that within a half a year, there will be no wild more in the in the forest. There will be no food more for us. So everything that we shoot, we eat. If it's if it's too much, then we will uh, conserve it, and we will try to sell it at French Guiana or at another market in Suriname. That is how we do, but that is only if it's left over. Um, as I said, we cannot do anything commercial because uh, we don't have a lot. Our our uh, community, our village, it's like an island. We don't have much, so we uh, we depend we we are depending on what the nature gives us. So we cannot destroy nothing. The Kalinia are smaller in number due to the depleting natural resources resulting from external human activities and natural disasters brought on by climate change. Many people now seek opportunities outside of the community. The resources are getting less, lesser every day, uh, and most people wants to want to get the education as well, a better education. We only have the basic uh, education in our village, and that is until age eleven, age twelve, and after that they have to move on. We ha- they have to go to the city or to the next district to or town actually to study further. That's why many people have left and actually to seek a better life, right? Because uh, the village is getting crowded. It's getting, we cannot expand. As I said, we are like a small uh, island, so we cannot expand. We had a guest house that uh, was providing work for a lot of people in the community. And this guest house is just getting washed out because of the climate change. The the water, the sea level is increasing. And it took the whole guest house away. Uh, it took about 200 meters of our beach away. And this sand is going away. The, the sea is taking it and bring it away, further, further away. Um... So what do we do? We have to adapt because we don't have this uh, we don't have this material to bring the bring the zent again, the beach again, how it was in his glory days. And we we believe like my yeah it 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 depends on who who says this. But my grandfather says it will come back once. But maybe you and I will not be here anymore, but it will come back. That is what he says. Uh, because he believes that, um, yeah, sometimes yes. you have to give and sometimes uh, you're going to get it. And we got it, but now the nature wants it again. So it's, it's going to change. That is what he said. And it's true. Sometimes you see the beach is growing, it's, it's getting high again, the sand. But most time the sea it's taking it away. Uh, there's a lot of proof that houses are just getting uh, washed away. The whole guest house it was a guest house for about 100 people, and it's it was like a hotel. And now this is 
it doesn't exist anymore. So the work is less. People are not coming there um, as much as previous years. Um, yeah, it's 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 getting worse, not getting better. According to Sirijo, after the guest house was destroyed, there has been limited development and opportunities for indigenous people. Some people engage in ecotourism, but this, he says, is done on a small scale. And with the high cost of living due to the state of the economy, many people do not have enough to give back and develop the community. As I said, in um, 1976, uh, the government uh, decided to make a protected area for the sea turtles. They were taking about the sea turtles and not about the humans. We were less important. So uh, the sea turtles are protected. Uh, the and it's about one kilometer from our village. And the deal is that we can use the we can use the beach, but we cannot uh, sell these eggs, the sea turtles, because it's an uh, it's a delicatessen in Suriname for the Japanese people, mostly. Uh, but now it's illegal. We cannot sell it. Okay. Uh, but if I look at uh, what the government did since then, they put an, uh, a tourist thing, uh, a guest house, I think. Yeah, a guest house back then in the year 2000. But it didn't last because uh, it's very expensive to go to the to this beach. And it's, yeah... Uh, they didn't do any re- renovation, so it doesn't exist anymore. Or, yeah, it doesn't get used anymore. It's distorted, etc. But in the village, no, the people themselves, we, the people, we don't right. want uh, any other people doing things over there. We like to do it ourselves. So we did, yeah, some people did do, or they are still doing ecotourism. On a small scale, but it's just for their family. It's not for you know the community. They cannot give back to the mm-hmm. community because everything that they are gaining, it's uh, they have to give back because everything is expensive, and that's why tourism in Suriname is very expensive. Not only to Galibi, but uh, in, ge- in general, because the oil prices, because all, all of all of these uh, prices in Suriname, it's very the economy is is falling. So. It's crashing. So tourism in Suriname, I don't think it's it will be something to think about uh, from now until 10 years, I think. We are not there yet. Um, because I travel a lot. I see a lot of uh, other places. I see other countries in South America. And they are organized, you know, um, because the government is organized as well. Another challenge for community development is a lack of involvement and ownership of community projects by indigenous people. Are there projects and interventions in Suriname that you think adequately address indigenous peoples and 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 include you in climate projects and stuff like that? Talk to us about that. No. <laughs> and I was a uh, a little of background of me, personal. I was working with Red Plus Suriname, the climate change mm-hmm. uh, project, the big one in Suriname, and I was the liaison officer. So there were plans actually to help the people 
directly in the communities, in the villages, to make them aware and to help them to uh, give them institutional uh, strengthening to do their own project. And we did that actually a couple of years. But when it came uh, at the end, actually at the beginning of the big projects, they they forgot about the communities. And all they wanted is like uh, the bureaucracy um, because they know that millions are coming as they said at the COP and all of these cops, yes, we have millions, we have this, we have a lot of money, but it's only the governments and only the private uh, or the big organizations are getting this money and these funds. And when it comes to uh, to the field, to the community, uh, to do these projects, they are not involving us. They are just, or the way that they are involving us is like, um, hey, what do you need? You need water? Okay, we can do a project for us, for you. You know, it's not involving me. You're doing a project within yes. my community and not respecting my uh, decision. It's just you doing it that because I want it. Yes, I need it. I will say, I will never say no because I know my children will need it later as well. But do I have ownership of this? No. When you as a stranger or any other person will come, hey, the water tower is uh, getting destroyed. Yeah. So, yeah, but you don't uh, sustain it. You don't uh, clean clean it or something. Yeah, I don't know. Some people came and they did a project, so they have to come to repair it, right? Because I don't have any ownership you didn't give me that ownership and that is happening all That's around true. the world and it's happening in Suriname all the time when uh, the last time when the climate uh, uh, fund came to Suriname they asked the OIS hey can you uh, make a project can you can you write a project maybe we can help we said yes of course why not uh, we want to. Yes. And we wrote a project. We were happy. I said, okay. Um, but when we sent this project, they came with the bureaucracy. Hey, something is missing. This is missing. So it's out. Your project is out. And after six months, we see that our project is being done by another organization that is not indigenous, that doesn't have indigenous people, that doesn't respect the, the, the thoughts of the indigenous people, but it just looked like that they want to do something for the community. So our project is being done by uh, friends and family um, within their groups uh, because they have better better people uh, in their finance or in the, in the administration, uh, etc. Uh, they have a better organization as they say. But mm. when it comes to execution, it's poorly done. Um, mm. We only hear, hey, there's a uh, tea project going on in, in, in a village or there's a project there. But the community say, yes, they are doing it. So we're just looking. 
or I'm doing some work and I'm getting paid and that's it because they don't have ownership. Yes. We don't have ownership. It's not that they are doing it. It's your thought. No. It's always the outsider thinking and doing and executing. So when you're asking if if the funds is coming, no. It's it's going to other Mm. people, the strangers, outsiders, we say. To the outsiders, uh, their pockets and not uh, within the indigenous community. So from your perspective, not just as a president of the indigenous group, but uh, but an indigenous person yourself, what would you like to see change in terms of how indigenous people are included in projects in their own communities? How should they be included? Well, in these the projects? world is changing, right? <laughs> Everything is changing. And yeah. we, everybody is adapting as well. Not only the outsiders are adapting, some organizations are getting rid of their bureaucracy and trying to help directly, trying to be there with the people as well. And so as we indigenous people are adapting as well, um, we have our own education in our villages. Some communities here don't have another way of uh, education, so they are home educated, uh, and that is our university. That is our uh, universe where we actually are living in. That's the reality. And but it's changing now. We see that, um, or we always knew, but we see that uh, the outsider. It, it takes a long time for them to adapt to us. So we are trying to adapt to them as well. So we are trying to have this education as well. We want to give our children this education for them to study, to learn, and to know how to do this work efficiently and better and uh, with feelings, with all of the cultural and traditional way of living that we have and not excluding these things. And that is what we want to learn our children. That is what we want to uh, have them to have. We want to have them a better education, a better life. Saricha believes it is important to adapt to the changing times, but that indigenous people must be allowed to lead with their local knowledge. I'm talking about the the, the Western uh, education, yes. right? Because our education is enough for us to live and to sustain ourselves and our grandchildren and our grand-grandchildren our whole life. Uh, we don't need any other education, but just to adapt, we want to give them that. So that is changing. So what do we want? We want to have our people working as well in the top, but as well everywhere where it's possible when it comes to indigenous communities or people or, or whatever. And it has us included. We want to have our people included there as well. And not saying, yeah, uh, I am professor so uh, you have to listen yes. to me no because you don't know what i have been studying in my village maybe i'm past the professor that you have studied the whole life but i have studied my whole life as well i'm learning every day every day and just yesterday last night i've learned a lot of uh, a lot of my family uh, in the amazon again i never knew that but I've learned some things and 
we never stop learning. So even if we would stop all the education in the world, uh, it would never stop us. It would never deliterate us as indigenous people because we we know we always know how to survive. We always know how to get past without electricity, without all of these things that yes. exist now. So from our side, we don't want to change anything. We uh, we want to stay the same. We want to be left alone. Actually, that is one thing, but it's impossible. Uh, we are we are getting infiltrated by many people and all of these gold mining or what all of these negative things. Um, yeah, that those kind of things we want to. Do. So I wanted to find out from you. Um in your role or as the president or or even your organization, the Organization of Indigenous Peoples in Suriname, how does your organization help to, to protect or work to protect um, or champion causes as it relates to land rights, as it as it relates to the protection of the resources? What 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 tell tell us about the work that you do in that area? The OIS, like other indigenous groups, exist to defend the rights of indigenous people. Sirijo explains how his organization helps other indigenous villages prepare and adapt to development changes taking place in their surroundings. Very short. Um, the in our in our statute, it's uh, it's written that um, we have to help our members actually to. Uh, to be strengthening in all in all matters, actually, what uh, what goes along the indigenous people and not only the members but also our communities where we are working, mm-hmm. we have to strengthen them. Um, actually, the OIS isn't a, was not an organization created to do projects but to fight for the rights of indigenous people in Suriname. And that is what we do. We are talking with the governments. We are uh, always on the in the background, uh, actually talking with the uh, with the people that are uh, involved with the land rights to have a look in these laws that they want to make for land rights. That uh, not only the laws but also the way that they are doing are they involving the uh, the indigenous people. We cannot always be there when they having uh, these meetings. No, because the, the people themselves they have to talk. The the leaders themselves they have to talk, and that is what we are actually watching out. Actually, the, the OIS is it's it's like always in the background, but when it must, we are also in the front, talking and um, being careful and being. Uh, Overlooking everything, not overlooking, uh, monitoring everything. Uh, but also what we are doing now, strengthening the indigenous people. It's, we are making the people aware. The wish is for things to remain as they are, but that is not the reality. Sirijo talks about a road construction project in an isolated indigenous village in South Suriname. The OIS distributed handbooks in the local language to help the villagers prepare for the changes and guide them on how to interact with outsiders. Though new roads are positive for the community, what does this development mean for the existing natural resources and their way of life? 
they are looking for what as in positive in a positive way yes but also on the other side the negative uh, way yes they are afraid of uh, big companies gold mining because they are living from the rivers they drinking the 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 water of the river they are hunting and they don't like to have big companies in their area um, it's not in our philosophy the philosophy of the indigenous people is uh, we are one with the nature and we cannot destroy ourselves if we are selling our lung how will we breathe mm-hmm. um, and that is how we live day by day we have a life we have a life plan and our life plan is not just one life no it's like four five six generation further that is our life plan and that 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 is what we are using actually day by day uh, how will we live you know um, and we don't need these big companies because we don't like money we never like money but yes we need money but we don't need millions we just need to survive Suriname is one of the few Amazonian countries that has not recognized the rights of indigenous people. For over two decades, many indigenous leaders have been fighting legal battles with the government. According to the International Work Group for Indigenous Affairs, in 2020, a draft law on the collective rights of indigenous peoples and tribal peoples in Suriname was approved by the government and submitted to the National Assembly in June 2021. Indigenous leaders believe it is not enough, nor does it adequately address their rights. Mercury pollution due to gold mining, deforestation, the construction of airstrips and roads near villages are among the activities that threaten the welfare and survival of the indigenous groups. Well, the reality of Suriname is that... uh the government can, cannot even sustain the people in Paramaribo in the city. So it's, 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 it's very less in the communities. And uh, they never have enough uh, funds actually to visit us. When they visit us, it's only for the political reason, only to gain uh, votes and um, just to, uh, to have some communication material. But to have... Uh, a feeling for the for our people no uh, it doesn't exist uh, many people already try to infiltrate our villages and if i'm talking uh, then about these things then i'm talking about in general right because you have in south west um, anywhere north but in southern in south suriname you have a lot of gold and a lot of diamond and a lot of people already tried to to talk with these people directly, and they already did uh, many uh, research in that area because they thought, yeah, it's going to be a success. We are going to pay the indigenous people just a, a, a amount of money, make them just say yes and sign the contract. But no, the people, the leaders, always uh, has have declined. And if we got help of the government, no. This this handbook, uh, the rules for the indigenous people and for the outsiders, it's 
clearly done by private, actually, yeah, not privately, but it's it's not done by the help of the government. And the government even asked um, a couple of days ago when we had this uh, book given out, or this handbook, they, they said, why is the government not involved? And um, the response of the OIS was that, one, Yes, we wanted to involve the government. Yes, we asked also. But there's always political reasons, always uh, things that goes around and never have time for these small things. But why do you ask, why aren't you happy that the indigenous people self, themselves made something like this? We don't mm-hmm. always need the government we can do it ourselves. And this is an example that we, our people, ourselves, has written this book. It's written firstly in their language and then it's translated into Dutch and English. It's from their perspective, it's from their mind. So, um, yes, we want to have help. We are seeking always help for our people and from the government. But do we get it? No. And we will not stand and wait always on them. Um, yes, the big companies are coming in. They are already trying to infiltrate many times and not just now. Uh, it's many years ago, decades ago, they are trying. They are always trying. And they will keep trying because they know that we, where the uh, area is, where the indigenous area is, is where the gold is, where the diamonds is. But we know that. And as I said, our, our philosophy, I'm going back to this, our philosophy is to live as one with the nature and not to destroy it. And that is what we are going to uh, keep doing. We are going to protect the forest. But how to protect it is just to live our way, the, the way we live, the way we are uh, used to live and the way we are going to keep living, actually. Well, thank you for that. Now, I have one last question to ask you as as you want to close out the discussion. So what message um, do you have for young people in how they can also play a role in protecting their indigenous communities? Well, you know, in our community, uh, young people, it, it doesn't exist, right? Um, we... When we are 12 years, we are already adults. 13 years, we are adults. Yeah, right. Um, For my people, I would say, you know, this, we are trying to change things, as I said in the beginning. We are, we want to have, because the time is changing, the world is changing. We want our children to be free. We want our children to be happy and have all the education that they have that exists. I want to send this message to all people, not only young, but also to all. It's that if you can be happy, let others be happy too. If you can share it, at least. If you can share, please share. Uh, I'm trying to share my my knowledge, my happiness with the world. I'm trying to be as happy as I can actually to share this to many people. Uh, Sometimes it's hard, but that's life. Sometimes it's it's very good, 
But don't forget that we are just people, that we are one with nature, because it's nature that has made us who we are, actually. And let's not destroy each other. Let's not kill each other. Let's not think and hate and negative of each other. You know, um, if something happened, really bad happened, yes, we have to learn to forgive. If we learn to forgive, we will learn how to value the smallest plants or the smallest insect that lives. Everything has a goal. Mm. Everything lives among us. And we are living among them as well. The only difference is that we can understand each other. There is no language barrier. Uh, Even if there is, there always exists humanity, what we say humanity. When you eat, think of each other, think of the other one and be happy with what you have. If you have a, a bowl of rice, know that other doesn't have any food on their table. They don't have table yes. to sit on. So be happy mm. with what you have and live your life and share if you can share with what you have. Yes. Your words your words have purity, you know, spoken like a true protector and preserver um, of the earth. And that's how we how that's how we revere and we look at indigenous communities, you know, allowing um, you to lead with local knowledge. And I think I kind of understand why it is that some indigenous communities in Suriname, like you mentioned, choose to keep isolated because sometimes in that way, you you're, you're, you are able to remain untainted as you focus on and reflect on really what the value in living is. Um, Sarijo, I want to thank you for taking the time and sharing with us um, today. And, um, you know, we're happy to have this conversation because when we speak about protecting marginalized communities, unrepresented communities, indigenous communities, we we are grateful that you're able to share this experience for us to still be motivated that what we are championing for in the name of climate justice are very valid. You know, it's the right to live, the right to enjoy natural resources and the, and the right to thrive in equal dignity with people and nature. That is something I learned from a previous guest on the podcast. So I want to say thank you very much and we wish you the best in the work that you continue to do to to protect and fight for the indigenous people of Suriname. Yes, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity and I wish you all success in your work. And uh, I know it's, an, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. I know that communi- communication is a... It's a big word, actually, communication. It's uh, very difficult. It's very, with all the languages as well. Um, So I wish you all success. And yeah, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Stay tuned for part two with the National Garifuna Council in Belize. listening global yadi remember to like share and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast follow us on instagram twitter and facebook at global yadi to learn more about the caribbean youth climate justice coalition follow ypacja on instagram and twitter that's ypacca 